Thank you for listening to Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. This is Episode 53, Act 1, Margie Johnson-Reese, Passing the Baton, recorded February 18th, 2022. I'm so damn tired of waiting on a perfect A plus B. The one size fits all prudent kids all screaming about irrevocability. Let's burn some bridges, earn some stitches, and fight our own way free. Cause the rules don't lie, but they don't apply to people like you and me. Let's start it up now. 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 Now they say it's all decided, all divided, all laid out. And the pushcart man with a three-part plan can't understand what you're shouting about. But when the past they plow, the lives allowed are the only roads you can see. Just remember the walls were built to fall for people like you and me. Let's start it up now. 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 Hey, hey, TA audience. Welcome to Teaching Artistry Podcast. This podcast is researched, recorded, and produced on the unceded lands, water, and air, stewarded by the Canarsie and Muncie Lenape peoples in what is colonially known as Brooklyn, New York. Thanks for listening, and thanks for being a part of our global community. Invite your peeps, colleagues, and friends to join our community and subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and head over to teachingirishry.org to access episodes, guest bios, our video series, merchandise, and more. Juneteenth, also known as Emancipation Day or Jubilee Day, has been celebrated for years and years and years in the Black community and is now a federal holiday in the United States. This day commemorates the emancipation of enslaved Africans in Galveston, Texas. The, um, the announcement was made on June 19th, 1865 by a Union Army General stating the news of the Emancipation Proclamation, which happened two years earlier. Uh, and so... I'll say that the, the, the fight for black liberation obviously started long before that particular moment. But this day is a day that we celebrate because the final enslaved people had the knowledge that they could live free. And it's also, while it's a celebration, it's a day of mourning, right? A day of mourning for all the violence Lives destroyed the inhumanity of chattel slavery. And in this century, in this moment, we have a real chance here, right? We have a, an opportunity to reframe our U.S. history to center the humans who were deeply affected by chattel slavery. Um, it's also a chance to center humans who specifically hold generational trauma of this business practice in this country 
and um, and its impacts on today's society, right? Our socio-political climate, laws, prisons, um, the school-to-prison pipeline, for example. And it's an also a chance to connect to you know not just live in that trauma but but um live in joy live in celebration live in connection um and you know i've asked our guests in the past this question about what does a racially just and liberated world look like and in this moment i'm going to ask all of us to think about something more specific even more specific what does a racially just and liberated world look like for black people in this world, in this country, in your community? And if we can start to imagine, really imagine what that is and name it and speak it into existence, speak it, how does that impact our education work our arts education work how does it impact our practices and especially when we are um, specifically working in communities whatever those communities are wherever they are um, of black people brown people people of color um, but very specifically black people i think about this a lot and I need to think about it more. So that's where I am right now. Not only do I need to think about it, I need to act on it. But I offer that to all of us. So our guest this month is none other than Margie Johnson-Reese. And I've known Margie for about a decade now. And from the very first moment, that I met her, which we talk about in this episode, I had um, oh, so much respect, tremendous amount of respect for her. And each time I would see her over that decade, which was mostly at conferences, uh, mainly because we we don't live in, uh, we didn't, and we still don't <laughs> live in the same region. Um, yeah, every time I saw her, I just felt immediately at home. Uh, I don't know what that's about, but like it's as if I've known her I knew her before, right? And it took me inviting her onto this podcast to actually learn her particular story, her origin story, her work and career um, trajectory, and what how she views her work um, as as a woman who's you know older um, and somebody that I could absolutely be learning from. But her story is unbelievable. I cannot wait for you to hear it. Um, and I will say that Margie has, without a doubt, left an indelible mark on me without even trying, <laughs> frankly. Um, and I cherish it. I cherish her. I'm so glad to be able to call her my friend and colleague and that I, I've um, gotten this chance to get a little bit underneath the surface with her. So have a great time. Sit back and relax. And just listen. Here is episode 53, act one, 
Margie Johnson Reese passing the baton. Margie. Yes, Miss Courtney. Miss Margie. I'm so, so excited. It's so nice to be able to share space with you. Same here. Welcome to Teaching Artistry Podcast. This is a podcast that celebrates artists, culture, and equity. And um, I, I've i always been fascinated by you. <laughs> and so, oh, yes. I mean, and always, I mean, since I've known you. Um, but I'm, I'm really excited to learn in a more deep way, more thorough way uh, about your journey um, in, in life, but also in our arts, uh, arts and education community. And um, I'm recalling... I'm recalling like the first time I met you um, in Texas. Okay. Yeah. I, my, my colleague and I, Lindsay, um, went to Big Thought mm-hmm. for like a, like an information learning session to learn more about their research and most specifically working with Wolf Brown, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. Everybody put together like this lovely little package for us to like meet with this person and that person like Jennifer and Gigi and all these folks. And you were working with a cohort of teaching artists down in like we, I remember going down somewhere <laughs> and you were working with this cohort of teaching artists. And that was, I think the first time we met you was while you were working with them. And I just was like, who is this woman? I want to know everything about her. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Um, so let's start with like a very basic question, which is how are you doing? How are your loved ones doing? I'm doing just fine. I've, I've learned how to swim upstream the last couple of years. I've learned how to relax, uh, which was something that I had failed to do. Uh, over the last couple of decades of my career, but I've learned how to relax into a space, no matter what the space looks like, to find a corner for myself. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm confident now that the world will keep going when I'm not here. So I want to stay here as long as I can. And the best way for me to do that is just to slow down. Um, And I'm really excited that I've learned how to do that. I've learned how to say no, thank you, graciously. Um, I've learned how to do only the things that make me happy. And saying yes to this conversation is one of those things. Oh, that makes me, warms my heart. <laughs> um, um, so can you describe like what, what your, what your work is in this particular moment? Um, or you can sort of encapsulate your career. Like what, what kind of work do you do in this field? I'm still, I still feel like I'm an educator. I, I'm sure that right now my work is focused around what I, I'm calling legacy work. Um, doing as much as I can to push forward young leaders, particularly young leaders of color in the field. Um, to bring them along, to expose them to all the facets of arts management and arts administration. And to be that one person that encourages uh, somebody. Um, So I I have 
just a roster of formal and informal proteges that I'm mentoring. Um, I take great joy in saying to somebody, you know, you can do, you can do what you want to do, but you could also do mm-hmm. and pushing people a little bit because there's so much competition in the field of arts administration for the best, the next great idea. And you don't have the next, you don't have to have the next great idea. You just have to have a commitment to your idea Mm. and to keep it going, keep it moving. And whether it's the greatest idea or not really doesn't matter as much as focusing in on yourself and finding strength in in your own power, in your own voice. And so I really like being in a place where I don't have to, I don't have to prove anything to anybody. Um, And so the best work for me right now is to just encourage new leadership and younger leadership. And it brings me a lot of joy, actually. What you just said was so beautiful um, about, you know, pushing and loving and caring and caretaking and not feeling the pressure to be the, the, you know, like allowing space for growth and working, you know, deeper actually is what I think I heard inside of what you're sharing. Yeah. I think that's where we fall short as mentors. We, when we get to a point, I heard a young arts administrator say on a call on a zoom call recently that um, the, this next generation of leaders really is ready to take over, but the old guys like us won't get out of the way. And I think there's something to that, but I, I also wanna make sure that when we do get out of the way, and we will, that we have passed on what we've learned, not, not that it needs to be repeated you know, or or needs to be the gospel, but we've passed on what we've learned. We've shouldered some of the heartache that this field can bring you, Um, that we have uh, chipped away at enough of the barriers to allow that new generation with great ideas to come in uh, to the the field. And, And this is not a field that was designed by us or for us. You know, the field of arts administration was designed by, you know, a wealthy cohort of white men and their wives. It was designed by a corporate mindset that had a certain hierarchy to it. So it wasn't designed for people that come from different cultural backgrounds, where the the call and response is the way we work. Are you with me? Yes, I'm with you. Can I count on you? Yes, you can count on me. That's the way we work. Do you need a hand? Yes, I need your help. So we have a different structure of of building cultural institutions, but of building good projects. We're we're natural collaborators. And And so when you bring that round, you know, when you bring that very porous system and try to push it into what we now know as arts administration, you can get hurt. Your feelings get hurt. You know, the your your ideas get dismissed. 
um, and because you don't have as many of those opportunities to 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 fail, right? And you need a lot of opportunities to fail. Mm -hmm. When you do fail, you feel like the rug has been pulled out from under you. So, I want to be in a position now, and I, I I'm I'm making myself be a resource, if no more than to say your idea is your idea. And it doesn't have to be validated by anybody but you. The thing that you wanna try, you should try it. And understand that if you don't find success the first time, you don't find success at it the second time, it doesn't mean that it's not worth a third try. Um, I've been in the field of arts administration, Courtney. Oh since 1979, so do the math. Thrown into it. I didn't know that there was such a thing. I had a couple of degrees in theater and I wanted to make sure that I could get a job. I wanted to act and I wanted to design costumes. Well, I could do the sewing, but I couldn't be the costume designer. I could be the seamstress. I could be the extra or the understudy, but I couldn't be cast on a main stage you know, role. The, the audiences just weren't accepting of that. So I started sliding over to the decision-making side of things. Who's deciding that I can't do these things? I want that job. And that was a job called arts administration, right? Um, so, I have a, I don't feel like I have a duty to share and give back. I have a passion for it. And I'm a pretty passion-free person. I don't do crying. I, I do laugh sometimes, but it doesn't mean I don't think the thing is funny. But I'm always trying to figure out who's asking the question. What, what is the answer going to be? How am I going to respond? Uh, and so I feel like I have a, a real, you know, soft spot for teaching still and passing on mm. what I've learned. Um, As you were talking about the, you know, who, look, looking to find who's making those decisions, that's where I want to be so I can make the decisions. That reminds me of like bringing your folding chair to the table, right? Hello. Hello. <laughs> Thank you, Shirley Chisholm. Um, yeah, uh, let's go back then because I, I hear what you're saying about um, being being black, being a, a black woman, uh, you know, people of color. But I, I'd like to zone in on on being black in this field because I feel like you brought that up, and let's let's be in that space. Um, and I also heard you you say something that I I think I knew theoretically but you actually again put something into the space about how what the structures that people are fighting against right now or pushing back against right now were set up by one set of one culture or one set of folks for themselves and not creating that sort of collaborative porous I love that word um I, I rounded I think you also said something about the roundedness of collaboration and what that can look like um, in terms of program design and culture building and organization uh, structures. 
um, organizational structure, excuse me. Um, but I'm curious. Okay. So 1979, you said is when you sort of moved into arts administration. So let's start before that. I want to know where, where did you grow up? What did you, how, how did you get to theater school, like majoring in theater in school? Um, and where did you go to school? So start from where did you grow up and how were you engaged in the arts as a kid? I grew up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. So in the heart of Earl K. Long territory and Jim Crowism in the 50s. I grew up mostly around my grandmother's house because my mother worked, you know, everybody had to work. And so the kids stayed with the grandmother and she just let you play. You had chores to do, but you could also play outside. And playing outside is it's a magical thing. A lot of kids don't get to do, but you can see the clouds taking different shapes, just lying on the grass. You learn how to cool off. You learn when it's time to eat lunch and when it's time to clean up. And then you can talk to your imaginary friends or to your sisters, I had three of them, um, have three of them. And I was always kind of interested in storytelling. I was curious about people and their names. You know, like why do we call my grandmother who's beautiful, whose name was Ada. Why do we call her Medea? What does that mean, Medea? How do you spell that, you know? Not the Tyler Perry parody of a grandmother, but a real mother dear. And, she, and I knew that she held us so close to her heart that we were so special. The things that she cooked for us, the the I want I want your listeners to think about this. The three little girls in the mornings would get to to have the sugar, the cane sugar at the bottom of her coffee cup. What a delicious treat! Now, not only did it sugar us up for the day, but there's a lot of caffeine in that chicory coffee too. But that was the sweetest thing. And she knew we were waiting for that. And she wouldn't make us wait long. And so just the endearment, I think it, it, it helped to prepare me for loving someone. She mm -hmm. loved us so much. And I, and, I, and I knew what that looked like. Um, but I would sing and I have no singing you know, talent. I would dance and prance around and I would talk. I would read a lot and I would talk a lot. And so I was the sister that got you know, sent out to go talk to somebody all the time. But I never knew that that was acting, right? I knew that if I changed my tone or my posture that I could get something that I wanted or I could declare something. But when I got to be about eight years old, this was a turning point. And, I, and some of your listeners who know me have heard me tell the story. It's about eight years old. And I remember that it was about that time after Thanksgiving that I would start seeing these commercials for the Nutcracker. And the music fascinated me. I'm an eight year old colored girl 
in Louisiana, had no idea who the composer, the choreographer, nothing about, but this music was fascinating. And the person on the TV, the black and white TV that we watched would say, bring your children to audition for the Nutcracker. But let me figure out what that means. It means bring your kids so that they can play. And now mind you, my, my, my family members were pretty decently educated people at this college graduates, teachers, et cetera. So I would ask to be taken to the Baton Rouge Little Theater year after year after year, three or four years in a row to be told no, well, maybe next time, no, you can't go. And so I finally just gave up and thought, well, maybe this is just not something I, I wanna do, but knowing that it really was. And it wasn't until I got to college that I figured out why they didn't take me. They couldn't take me. Black girls were not allowed not even to see the performance, let alone to participate in it. And I thought by the, by the time I figured it all out, I said to myself subliminally, that's got to change. And I'm gonna be the one. If I'm ever in a place, in a position where I can make a space for a little black girl, doggone it, I'm gonna do it. I go to college, I go two years to Southern University, I major in theater because I'd grown through high school in a black high school, I was allowed, right? I enjoyed it, I enjoyed reading Shakespeare, I enjoyed reading James Earl Jones, James Earl Jones and seeing this, hearing this voice, you know, mm -hmm. come out of this man's mouth. And um, we, did, um, we did some black theater, we did some classical theater, you know, in high school. I get, two years at Southern University and one of my professors comes to us and says, this thing called integration is happening. Now it's a 1967, 68. There are colleges across the country that are recruiting black students from the South, scholarship money. Washington State University is offering scholarships for my students that I recommend and he himself was recruited to go teach in Pullman, Washington. Where is that, my mother said. <laughs> so I go. I thought, well, this is an adventure. I get to Pullman, Washington. Everybody, everything is white. The snow is white. The, you know, the buildings are white. The people are white. But I know white people. But these weren't my white, these were different kind of white people. These were curious white people. Mm. But they, anyway, two years I graduate with a degree in costume design. But while I was there, I, I auditioned for the things that I could audition for. And I got even more committed to inclusion. And I didn't know that that was the thing that I longed for. But I met lifelong friends there. Um, and I learned that people do different things with apples than we did in the South. They actually put them in the oven. I thought, oh my God, what a strange thing. <laughs> and then they poke little black things in them called cloves. I mean, why would you just eat the apple? Why would you put it in the oven? So I had this whole cultural you know, awakening, right? So I go back to Louisiana 
after college. And I realized that, that I couldn't handle my white people anymore. They weren't curious about me. They were afraid of me. I had an Afro by this time. I'd met Johnetta Cole at this point. I knew Angela Davis was a real, a real um, in, in, intellectual and not to be feared, but to be heard. So I knew some things coming back that I didn't know when I left. I got married to my high school sweetheart and we moved to Dallas. And I decide that I need to get another degree because the only job I can get at this point is receptionist or something. So by luck, I ran into a gentleman who was a board of trustee member for the Dallas Theater Center, the big Dallas Theater Center. I enrolled with his help, get a degree in theater. And as soon as I got, you know, got my degree, I, I started, started dawning on me, that little girl thing started dawning on me that this, this place gets money to hire actors. Why is it not hiring black actors and paying us the same amount of money as the white actors? Who's giving them this money to make that happen? I learned, I dug around and figured out that it was a city. It was a state. It was a national endowment for the arts. It was taxpayer dollars. And I thought, okay, now we're on to something. Somebody is deciding what happens to the money that I work hard and put into the bucket called the tax rolls, right? Somebody's deciding that, who, who gets the money and then when these folks at the theater get the money, they decide how to spend it. I need to, I need to be a part of that. I need to know how those decisions are being made. So I roll myself into a job at the entry level position with the city of Dallas in their cultural affairs department, just so I could learn. And once I got the job, I figured out I actually liked it because I could direct funding, even though at that point it was still the minority funding pool. But I, I had control over a decision-making opportunity. And I just, I don't know, can't tell you the, the, the little curious little girl wanting to know who decides. And then I could ask why, because I'm inside of the system I never gave up my fantasy for being a creative person. I still designed costumes when I could. And as a side job, you know, I still acted and directed too, actually. But I, I knew that the lane I wanted to be in was in the decision-making lane. And that I could never show my uh, fear. I could never let them see me cry. I could never let anybody know that I didn't know in order for me to be in a position to ask a question, I had to stay at the table, I had to stay in the game. Um, and so I did from gosh, 1979 till now um, at all sorts of tables, asking all sorts of whys and, and being an advocate. Uh, I think 
I, I talk about your work. People should think about their work in four categories. You should think about your work, your job, what you do every day. And you should think about your work life. Who are you when you show up? And then you should think about your life. My family, my neighbors, my friends, the things I love to do, my church. And then you think about your life's work. And my life's work, I know now, has been to not allow people to shut the door on me because I didn't know the rules of the game. As long as I knew what the rules were, I could play. And if it meant that I had to be silent or outspoken, I need to understand what the lay of the land was. And, uh, and then nobody can pull the wool over your eyes, you know, when you know the rules. And so this, this commitment to my life's work has been changing the rules through, through any process that worked and then teaching you how to understand what the rules are so that you can use that knowledge to advance you know, your passion, your idea and, and your life's work. I could picture almost every single moment that you, you were sharing. That's how good a storyteller you are. Um, and I, I want to just as a, a pointed, uh, like a, a, a point of illumination question of when the professor was like, they're giving scholarships to this, uh, this university in a state that is on the other side of the country from where you live. Yes. You know, you said, I have to go. I just have to know. But like, what was it exactly that like compel? I, I'm so curious about what compels, a, frankly, a black person to move out of a, an area that they understand out of an ecosystem that they understand like the great migration. Like there was a reason for that. I'm not, I'm not equating those two things, but I'm just saying like, what is what was it exactly that was like, uh, you know, did you feel like you were going to break free or did you feel like this is an opportunity for me to just experience life in a different way? Or what was, what was the thought process? I think it was, was, and still is curiosity. I just have a curious nature. I want to see other people. I want to know where other people live and how they think and what they eat and what they do. I want to take the story off the page and be a part of it. I have no fear. My mother used to say that as a child, she would say, Margie never meets a stranger because I want to know who you are more than you want to know who I am. And the fact that you do want to know who I am makes me not want to tell you. Um, but I, I felt like some something said to me, this is an opportunity for you to explore a different place and for you to be, you know, to, to, to get to the place where you could thumb your nose up at those people that said, you can't come here. Mm-hmm. You can't play with us. And I thought, well, I'll go play someplace else. And again, I mean, you know, six or seven years had passed from the time I was eight. Mind you, I started college when I was 16. 
So, so not much time had passed, right? And I was still angry and frustrated that I couldn't go play with them. And I needed to understand why white people, what, what was so special about them? Mm -hmm. The other thing that my mom said to me when I left home, she said, remember who you are. You can always come back home. And the only difference between those white people that you're going to meet and the white people that you're leaving is their address. They're the same. And so understanding that I didn't have to prove myself to anybody, it was a new space I could go explore and it was an opportunity. And it's 1968, what's mm -hmm. happening in America? Cities are burning, people are trying to find their way and you know get their voices heard. And I just needed to go explore, I think. I'm reminded of stories that my dad used to tell me um, that I've shared somewhat throughout this podcast is he grew up in Alabama also around the same time. I think he's a few he was a few years older than you because he graduated college in six uh in, uh, he got married in 68 so he graduated like maybe a year or two earlier than that um and he uh he went to a college in mobile alabama and uh in that particular college in that particular place um the school was not integrated though there were in his class there were eight total students he was one of eight uh, students who were black um, and he and most of the other other students lived in town so they were commuters but he lived in Phoenix City so he had to live like he was renting from someplace off campus and he really wanted to have the college experience and um, he worked from the time that he was a freshman through uh, his junior year to get to live on campus and by his senior year most people are trying to get off campus right he finally got to live on campus and that was a, that was a big deal there was an article in the paper about it like it was a big deal um and so that was i believe 1967 into six or 66 into 67 so somewhere around there so just just you know it's around the same time as your story is taking place too and um, I don't, I don't ha have that story, but I, um, in terms of like, uh, making decisions, big life decisions about moving from a place that you understand to going to an another place. I have two places that that sort of lands for me, um, as somebody who grew up in, in New York, um, grew up in a, a pretty affluent town, but was straight up like lower middle class to, uh, to middle class by the time. Um, I, I was leaving or going to college, um, and in a town where it was predominantly white, um, and affluent and, and, um, I went to college, uh, in central New York. So going to another part of New York state <laughs> where it was, you know, this is a very similar makeup in terms of the percentages of, of, uh, different ethnicities and races. And, um, and yet it was an opportunity for me, um, to shed some, some images that were, uh, or 
it was an opportunity for me to feel like I could, I could learn about other people, uh, learn more about myself, be more of myself. Um, and it was, uh, in my opinion, one of the best decisions I ever made because I had a couple different choices to stay, stay at home or go away. And I went away. And then another time in my life that I felt like un- unintentionally, but I, when I look back on that experience was, uh, was very pivotal for me uh, in a different kind of way where I was more submerged into black culture by living in Atlanta and, and working in places where I, I, the, you know, the predominant, uh, uh, it was predominantly black, black women. I was working in education. Um, but all the administrators were either, uh, white or people of color that were non-black. Um, but by that point I was educated. I was, you know, I was in a place where I, I could, I, people could see my leadership skills and I was being given opportunities over other people who had been working there for a long, long time. So there was that kind of, uh, dynamic that was a little challenging, but at the same time for me, like it was just, it was important for me to be with very specifically with women of color, but like people of color, black women, um, in a way that I, I didn't grow up around, you know, with the, with the exception of my family, but even that was in pockets. Um, and I remember when I was looking at colleges, uh, I thought, I thought I said, you know, let me look at, I'm going to look at schools down South. And my dad laughed at me, like literally laughed at me. It was like, (laughs) you wouldn't survive in the South. (laughs) <laughs> I was like, what? Oh, uh, maybe right. I don't know. I don't know. Um, and so, you know, I sort of had that in the back of my head when I went to Atlanta. And at first I was like, oh, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. This, this is, but I found, I, I found my way and I found my people and I felt like, you know, this is, this is a, this is a moment that I need to, um, cherish and, and like sink, sink into. And I'm so glad that I did. Where did you go to undergrad? Oh, I went to SUNY Cortland. Okay. My, uh, yeah, I'm about to hit my 30th high school reunion. <laughs> and therefore, like almost 30 years ago, I went to college. Yeah. Well, I got off the plane in Seattle mm-hmm. and they somebody put me on a bus to Pullman. So it's Pullman, Washington, for those that don't know, is about its it's close to the border of Idaho that you can get and still be in the state of Washington. So it's on the Eastern corner. In fact, we would go over to Idaho uh, to drink because the drinking age was 18 or something. Mm -hmm. And so we get to Pullman, somebody meets me, some nice student representative meets me you know, they pick up my bag. They take me through the process to get to my dorm room. My roommate, whom I haven't met yet, has not arrived. I set up my room and put on my bedspread that my grandmother made, you know. And then later the afternoon of the next day, my door opens and it's a young woman and her mother who would be my roommate. And the mother said, oh no, my daughter is not going to sleep in this room with a colored girl and closed the door in my face to which I said to myself, oh, that means I get this room by myself if nobody wants to stay with me, right? 
And so I did. I thought you're lost, but I'm not going to spend any energy thinking about you. So I stayed in my in the room, a dorm room by myself the first year. But fortunately, theater people are something else. You mm-hmm. know? Fortunately, so, you know, now I'm a sophomore because I've done my first year and a half at Southern University. Mm-hmm. And so I start meeting my theater colleagues and all of that fear washes away because theater people are just crazy and curious like I was. And they want to laugh and you want to eat together and you want to talk and tell, you know. So you find you find a community that you connect to. There were two other African-American students in the theater, whole theater program, but they were two. So there's three of us and this crazy group of actors. And so while I, on the one hand, was being, could, could have taken offense to that door slamming in my face, what I found was a community of people that I had other things in common with. Mm-hmm. And, and they wanted to touch my hair, which you know was not happening. And they wanted to know about the South. And I wanted to know about riding horses and picking apples. Right. So you do have to, you do have to let yourself relax into the space that you're in, like we were saying earlier, so that you can find someone to connect with and talk to. Otherwise, you become lonely, jaded, bitter, isolated, an incomplete person. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I wanted to enjoy my life. I was still trying to do that. Yeah. And so I think for me, being in the arts was the right place. And in that particular instance, it was the bonding opportunity that I needed to save my humanity and, and to still be a part of the Black Student Union, to still lie down across the admissions office about, you know, we need more Black kids here, all of those things. But I, but I was able to enjoy the creative team that we toured together and I did Shakespeare together and we were, we were, so, so the, the, even though people say the arts bring people together and sometimes it does make you sick, it is a barrier free environment in many cases when you can connect with people that are creative Mm -hmm. and and, and then have that kind of spirit um, of creativity. I love theater people. I think they're, uh, Quick story, quick, quick. Uh, my also my freshman year live uh, was partnered or partnered, but roomed up with um, uh, a girl who was from uh, the Buffalo area. Had never met a black person before. I learned that later. Had never met a black person before. It was super awkward when we first met. I think we had a couple of phone conversations in advance, um, and she and I were like night and day, not just our skin colors, but like just night and day in terms of personality, but our names were the same. Yeah. So, and we ended up like finding the same sort of group of friends on our floor. And, um, and by the end, like by midway through the, the our freshman year, we like f- figured out how to like be friends <laughs> because it was, it was, we were just like 
not it wasn't bad it wasn't like awkward but you could tell you could just tell you just know you know when parents are like oh (laughs) you just know all of that and my parents were so adept at dealing with that and knowing what that was because they were often the only black people in any space any given space and they taught us how to how to navigate that i i'm very good at navigating white spaces um uh taught from a very young age but but at the same time, I hear what you're saying. Like when I, you know, I, I came in as a communications major, but immediately auditioned for a play, got in and was surrounded by all these creative types. And, I, you know, I didn't do a ton of theater in high school. So I was really like, what is going on here? But I love the freedom and the creativity and the like the not like the knowledge and sharing the knowledge that they have of musical theater and this and that things I don't know about so it was it was this like prime spot for me to learn and grow and find my own uh express way of expressing myself and my own in fact my I had like this duality because the (laughs) the way that the campus was set up is all the dorms were down the hill and all the um the academic buildings and the theater were up the hill and there was like two different Courtney's. And then I became like CJ and Courtney because remember I said that our, our, uh, my roommate's name was also Courtney. So the message boards, you know, I would sign my name, Courtney J. So they knew it was me. If I, if I messaged somebody that we were both friends with and they were like, Oh, we'll just call you CJ. So all my friends in the dorms, I was CJ and all my friends in the theater, I was Courtney and then all, but those people were not the same people. <laughs> so then there was one night where we were out. I, I forget what happened when I was out somewhere and some, I'm hanging out with the theater people. And one of my friends like rolls by from the dorms and is like, what's up CJ? And I'm like, Hey, what's going on? And of course all the theater people are like, what is this? <laughs> Who are you? Are you leading a double life? And it, you know, <laughs> I was like, that's actually, that's all of me. I'm all of this. And that's great. And you can be. Mm-hmm. You have to be to save yourself. There was something else that you said in your story about working in Texas um, and sort of doing that segue of working in government and working um, as an administrator and and not being able to express from an emotional place, uh, you know, not letting them see you cry and not letting them know that you, you didn't know something or, you know, and I'm, I'm curious about that for several reasons. One is I, I'm in a place where I'm constantly being like, I don't know what that is. (laughs) Is that bad? I don't think so because I'm able to say, I don't know what that is. I want to know what that is. I will do what it takes to find out what that is. Um, I'm, cause I also heard you say like, I want to understand all these pieces so that I can know where I can disrupt. Um, and that's what I need to know. I need to know the lay of the land so that I know where I can bend and, and snap <laughs> or break things in order to change them. Um, but I'm, I'm, I feel like that remark I've heard many, many times, especially from women of color in this time, in this field, um, and, and you see it play out in the media. You see it play out. And you can even like, if you, you want to look at politics, you can look at Michelle Obama, right? Like h- what kind of face we must put forward in order to, I don't know. I don't even know what the right language is here, but I'm curious about 
many things. Uh, I'll pick three. How's that? I'll try and pick three. Okay. I'll, I'll maybe just start with one and then we'll go from there. But like, I, yeah, I'm curious about the wear and tear on the, on the human, not feeling that they can be vulnerable in spaces in a way that we know that white women don't feel that way. And then I'm being really, you know, general there, but yeah. I, for some reason, I, I don't look at it that way. I think having the courage to stand up and ask a good question because I've done my homework mm-hmm. means that I don't have to rely on you or somebody to tell me what you think the lay of the land is. I'm going to go read it for myself. Mm-hmm. I think it's about representing also. I knew that when I got that job, I was representing the artists and communities of color, even though we weren't talking and using that language. But I knew that I was representing my people who had been left out. Mm. And I needed to, I needed to do good by them. Mm. I'm wanting to do good by them. So I think I probably did acknowledge that there were things I didn't know but not from a point of weakness, perhaps from a point of probing and asking more questions to gain more knowledge, but not to insinuate that I was less than because I had never tasted whatever the dish is, didn't mean that it was, that, that, that I needed to have that dish. I just needed to know what it was. So I could decide, I could decide when I wanted to try something new and when I was good standing my ground. And so it, it, it never felt, it still doesn't feel like a burden to me to represent. When I get in, I want to make sure that I bring you in. And, and I want to make sure that I know where the traps are before I bring you in. I want to make sure I know who's really throwing up the barriers so I can tell you that before you come in. And when you come in, you'll have a whole different set of skills to bring. My job is to represent the space, my people, myself, my gender, my children, you know, whoever my, whoever I'm bringing with me. And I'm bringing all this, bringing all of these people with me. But I need to, I need to, for the people that see me open the door for you, I need them to know that they better not mess with you. So I can't, I can't afford to be weak because I, and, and I don't feel like I'm some sort of savior or something that I got to protect Courtney, but I got to protect Courtney's ability to come in. And that is something that we have done for each other as people of color from, I mean, you, you name it, you name that, that, that heroine, whether it was your first grade teacher uh, that taught you how to read and sit up straight to your college professor, to your mom and your aunts and all that. So, I mean, listen, everybody has one of these. And my, the children in my generation call me this person now, but I had an Aunt Annabelle. Didn't you have an Aunt Annabelle? Oh, yeah. 
And baby Aunt Annabelle always wore her lipstick. She always sat up straight. She was always poised. She always had her hair done. She was always together in terms of her outfits that she made herself. And she always had that funny little smile. And she would say to me, the only way people know what you're thinking is if you tell them. So sometimes it's not what you say, Margie, that counts. It's what you don't say. Make them wonder what you're thinking. And I want people to wonder what I'm thinking. I want them to wonder what I know and what I don't know. And there was a lot of stuff I didn't know, but they didn't, they didn't have a clue mm. because, because they would reveal it. I would learn it, I would hear it, or I would go back and read the article, read the paper so that the next time that came up, I could really participate. But I don't, I never, I don't feel like, and, and maybe I'm just old school and, and the younger folks listening to this will, I would, would love to hear their thoughts about it. But I needed to be able, to, because I was a first in so many spaces and I needed there to be the first 100 and the first 500 after me. And if I indicated weakness, they would trample me. And so it, 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 I don't feel jaded by it. I don't feel, I don't feel anything by it except I got you. And I, I need to still feel that way. I need, because I'm still intent on those little children who want to participate in the arts to have the ability to do that. And I made that vow to myself for myself. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, I'm not carrying a burden. I'm living out my life's work. I made the decision to behave this way. You're always giving me anti-vibes. Always. In, a, in the best way. In the best way. I've always felt that. And what you just said, I, I, I have intrinsically known that since the day I met you without you ever having to say any of that. (laughs) Why are you making me talk? Thank you for listening to episode 53, act one of teaching artistry with Courtney J. Body, Margie Johnson Reese, passing the baton. Join us next time for act two. This podcast is edited and produced by Ben Weber. Christopher Totten is the director of creative content. Jonna Waldman wrote and performed the theme song. Tim Palin designed the logo. Visit us at www.teachingartistry.org and head to the pod shop at the top of the page for merch. Twitter us at TA underscore artistry. The gram at teaching artistry with CJB. And now on YouTube. Check out the teaching artistry with Courtney J. Body channel and watch We Can't Go Back. Like our page on Facebook. Listen to us on SoundCloud and Spotify. Subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to share this podcast with all the teaching artists in your life. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now.